text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. We have been looking at uh, throughout uh, the summer the stories of Jesus, the stories he gave us, the stories he told. Um, and the one that we'll be looking at this morning is a, a fairly familiar one, and it comes from Luke. Uh, this story is really about distractions, things that get in the way of what should be the largest issues or the main issues in our own lives. If you were to have to name that, if someone were to ask you, name the one thing that stands in the way of you obtaining the goal without telling you exactly what the goal was, um, what would your answer be? For some of us, it would be our boss. Uh, For others of us, it would be our spouse or our family, our children. Uh, We would have all kinds of answers as to what really stands in the way of me achieving uh, the greatest good in my life the highest goal. Well, Jesus gives this story as an answer to that, and it's not uh, the answer that we would expect. It certainly wasn't the answer of the people who asked the questions to him. Uh, In the midst of this passage, Jesus unrolls the dangers, the biggest danger in the spiritual life, and what he highlights is wealth. He says this is really the biggest distraction. This is the biggest issue For our spirituality, look with me as we read from Luke chapter 12, and I'll read verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, meaning Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundant possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. It's very nice your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? For this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you'd be with us as we think about distractions, things that get in the way of us thriving, of us excelling, of us really finding joy and fulfillment in this life and in this world. Father, all of us come from different places, and yet we all come to see and hear and think about you. So we pray you would meet with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Survey, the question was asked was this, what would you do for a million dollars? This is an older survey. I realize a million dollars doesn't go uh, as far as it used to. But uh, this survey was given in USA Today. What is surprising is the responses to this question. 42%, the vast majority uh, of them... Uh, of the respondees answered in one of the following ways. For two, for a million dollars, I would spend two years in jail. Um, I would move permanently to a foreign country. I would never see my best friend again. Uh, and it gets better. Uh, the number five on the list was this. I would throw my pet off a cliff. Um, It's entertaining, but you might be asking, what in the world does this survey have to do with me? And what does it have to do um, 
with this passage before Jesus. Most of us, if you've ever seen the original version of It's a Wonderful Life, yes, it's in black and white. I know I'm dating myself here. Uh, in that movie, uh, there's a character that we scorn. It's old man Potter. Um, he's wealthy in the movie. He has plenty of money. Um, and he uses that, wields that like power in the community. And we cheer for George Bailey, just the regular old guy who's fighting for existence. We pull for one and we jeer the other is the best description. What Jesus gives us here uh, is what it really means to be wealthy. What does that look like in our own lives? What does it mean, as I said earlier, to actually thrive? Just first, uh, 7, 13 through 17 tells us just the draw uh, that Jesus sort of unrolls. And it comes first in a very practical way. The question that is asked is extremely practical. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And that culture, at least in the ancient Near East, the brother, especially if it's the older brother, would wield incredible amount of power in the family. All the wealth, really, all the resources would be given to him uh, by the parents, certainly by the father. It's easy to see that this has become or is a dispute over wealth in the family. And it's easy for us to sort of reduce this to a lesson to those who have no wealth. In other words, no power. This brother comes, he has no power, no way to resolve this, and so he's pleading for Jesus uh, to intervene. And at least in our own lives, we know the reality is that premium is better. But what do I mean by that? Look, a fine steak is better than a tough one. Room service um, is really delightful. Uh, I'm not knocking any of that. It's true enough, all of those premium things are nice enough, but the problem is it's just temporary. It gives a temporary lift, and then, uh, even according to the quote in the front of your bulletin, it always requires more. It's not just that the issue that's here is practical, it's also cultural. These individuals would define one another by what they have. Uh, we do the same thing. It's common for us to ask someone what they do, meaning, uh, really, what do you do for a living? And underneath that is the subtle question of how much do you actually earn? Uh, in other words, there's a social payoff behind this question. In the ancient Near East, to have uh, meant that you were known. You were recognized. And because of that, you had relationships, significant relationships, powerful ones even in the community. The culture, their culture, our culture encourages accumulation just for accumulation's sake. Lynette Fromm took a shot at President Ford and she was interviewed by a member of the press who was also a member of the Manson family. She said the thing that attracted her to Charles Manson was his philosophy. And it can be boiled down to this. Get what you want whenever you want it. That is your God-inspired right. By whatever means, for you to get whatever you need. The story is told of a Quaker, an elderly Quaker. Uh, in order to teach his neighbors a lesson, he put up a sign on a vacant piece of property he had, and this is what the sign read. I'll give this lot to anyone who's really satisfied. One of his neighbors, a wealthy one, read it as he rode by and said to himself, since my Quaker friend's going to give this land away, I might as well have it as anybody else. I'm rich, I have all I need, I'm able to qualify, he thought. 
So he went up to the Quaker's door, he knocks on the door, and he said, look, uh, I've come to claim this piece of land. And the Quaker looked at him and said, are you really satisfied? I surely am, said the wealthy farmer. I have all I need. I'm well satisfied. And the Quaker's response was this, friend, if you're satisfied, then why do you want my lot? See, this passage really gets down to greed. Um, a word that we run from, even we paint this in the most negative terms, and yet, have you ever thought, if I had just a little more money, just a little more, not much, I'm not asking for millions, I'm just asking for a little bit more, then my family problems would be resolved. For some of you, you're tempted to think, then my spouse and I wouldn't fight about money. All of us here, no, no matter where we come from this morning, ask how much is enough. Why would I say that? It's found, it, it shows itself most vividly, most apparently in our comparisons. Or maybe better yet, in our complaints. Complaining about what we have and don't have. It, it shows itself also in our just general dissatisfaction with our lives and where we are. One writer said this, I hate this old, and then he just left the blank for you to fill in. We don't have enough. And yet, even in our community, we have enormous storage spaces that are built and continuing to be built. Actually, that only occurs in wealthy communities. And communities that economically don't have that, what you find instead of pawn shops. Uh, in wealthy community, what you find are storage units. For a lot of us, and I'm thinking specifically of one, closets are hazardous uh, for us to venture into and to open. Now, why is that the case? Why does wealth draw us like this? Why is it such a distraction? Because what does it promise us, actually, is a better question. Just the deception that sort of Jesus unrolls here. Because Jesus, his analysis is simply this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of grief. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Because he knows how easy this is. He knows the power. Wealth came not due to the man's ability or deception. In other words, According to the story, he came about this money honestly. It's not like um, he's a criminal. And it shows something of the radical problem, at least, that we know well. And the major problem is that it's reasonable. First, the security that you see here. This wealthy individual, he looks, he's got an abundance of crops. What a great problem to have. Um, and yet, his answer to that is he's going to find his security in his achievements. Why would I say that? You're just going to have to trust me on this. The, of the 54 words in this parable, 18, 18 of them, a third of them, have either I, me, myself, or I is uh, the number one word in the parable, the story. In other words, he prefers um, to talk about himself. Uh, instead of talking about God or others. His security, even in the story, even in the parable that Jesus says is, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now he looks at what he's accomplished and he thinks, I've arrived. 
I can take life easy. I can enjoy myself. The only responsibility he has is to himself, uh, is to me, myself, and I, and to no one else. His focus is actually drawn in on himself, complete leisure and self-indulgence. And I would be willing to bet if most of us, um, at least most of the guys that I meet with, uh, would tell you that this is our goal in life, a complete sort of self-indulgent, complete leisure. He adopts the philosophy of his day. This eat, drink, and be merry is exactly what the ancient Near East thought as the highest good and the highest goal. See, he has this delusion that everything that he has built, all of his security will somehow protect him from calamities. But even more important is verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, it's not just security that's really sitting underneath this. It's actually the idea of permanence. Everybody says, I want to be successful so I leave a legacy. I want to do something count that counts that will actually be remembered. And what's amazing is there's an incredible consensus historically on work and what it does. Why would I say that? Henry Ford said this, I don't think that a man ought to leave his business. He ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night. Um, Thinking men know that work is the salvation of the race. That's Henry Ford. Karl Marx, who we would say is just diametrically opposed to Henry Ford, said this, labor is the touchstone of man's self-realization. Man labors to put his mark upon it and make it his own. See, we work not to get a life, or or not to make a living, but to get a life. And what this parable gets at is, what if that's all that there is? What if uh, that's really the way you make your mark? What happens in a hundred years? You might be a rare individual even here this morning that somebody remembers you for a hundred years. But most of us, we will be utterly forgotten. And God's reaction is simply this. This man is a fool. He's not just ignorant. That's not what God is saying at all. But instead, he's the one who ignores God. He's forgotten. He thought he had security and permanence. He thought that this would last, actually. The question is not, could he do this? That, that's one question. Obviously, this man pulls it off. But should he do this? An epitaph on a grave in England of a famous writer said this, I only plowed water. What this writer notes is this, you don't make your mark on the world. Eventually the world just sweeps you away. Wave, it's like a wave upon the sand. This story dares us to look and see. He dares you to actually look at your life to your accomplishments and know that life trivializes. Building your life, building your world on your Work is just spin. The more you work to make your life have meaning, the more meaninglessness, if if that's a word, it will actually break through. It will actually begin to show itself in your life and in those around you. Some of you here this morning know that this is true. You feel it. Um, And your response is, I hate my life because of that. So how do we define wealth? If that's the reality, if that's the place that we all find ourselves in this morning, uh, 
how do you have or what is wealth? What this story calls on us, and this is what the way God says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. It means possessing His wealth, not our own. And there's something that tells us I won't have enough. If that is really my perspective, if that's really my orientation, of I won't have enough. Who's going to look out for me? Who's going to take care of me? See, Jesus comes back and says, God has given you everything necessary for this life, not only now, but for the life to come. What does this mean for us? Especially if you're a Christian this morning, first it means this. It just contrasts with the guy that we find in the story in three significant ways. First, it means rich in mind. The culture tells us, our world tells us, our relationship tells us that you're nothing apart from wealth. It's the constant whisper, it's every ad that you see, that you're nothing apart from your accomplishments. What it means is that we have to attack, really, the complaining, the comparisons with the gospel. It means finding, even in the midst of our lacking, a deep contentedness that suddenly I'm able to say to myself and those around me, what God gives me is actually enough. That's what I mean, rich in mind, and yet it also means rich toward others. Some would say that's humility, and we've defined that in a number of different ways, but really what humility is this, is not thinking less of yourself. That is not what humility is at all. It's not uh, feeling terrible about yourself. Instead, it is thinking of yourself less. Um, it means that realizing the wealth is already ours, and that there's no such thing as wealth that's not. What that produces is just an unbelievable generosity. This morning, if you're a Christian, you can't be generous uh, apart from Jesus, apart from knowing His wealth. Either you'll give and you'll be satisfied with that, and you'll actually think that God is satisfied with that, or He should be, or, or you'll begrudge what you give out of duty or obligation, but instead, if you know Jesus and His wealth, it comes naturally, joyfully to give. And lastly, it means a richness toward His kingdom. Giving to His work. And it's not formulaic. Some would say, how much do I have to give? That's really completely the wrong question to be asking. It misses the point altogether. It's not looking down, and it's not even looking around, but instead it's looking up. Look at the enormous needs around you. Because seeing actually implies that God is calling you to something. Even here in this church, we're only limited by our resources. Grand visions exist here of what we would like to do and what we want to be for this community. What this means is be rich toward God and give because He gave to you. Tim Keller said this, if we do not give our money away in remarkable proportions, we've not grasped we're not remembering Christ's generosity in saving us. He said, let's put it more starkly. You'll always give effortlessly to that which is your salvation, to things which give your life meaning. If Jesus is the one who saved you, your money flows easily to his work, his people, his causes. If, however, your real religion is your appearance, your social status, your personal comfort or pleasure, your money will flow easily to those items and those symbols. Current statistics in our country... Americans are by no doubt and no comparison wealthy people. 
recent study indicates real incomes have doubled in our country since 1950. And by comparison, Americans are generous as well. But then the question is, how generous are we? Um, Less than 2% in this country give any money to charities at all. 37% of American households give nothing at all, not only to charities or anything. And what we know is this, giving is not tied to income. In fact, the sad reality is this, the more people make, the less they give. I think the answer can sort of be boiled down to this. Desire becomes sin when it fails to include the love of God in others. A test that we can do, at least a test in our own lives, is this. How do we know when we've crossed this boundary, this line that Jesus lays out here? First, I'm to be content enough, or I'm to love God enough to be content with what I'm given. And second, I'm to love others enough not to envy what they have. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that you give to us richly and freely. You hold nothing back. And yet for many of us, we fail to remember that reality. We look at the sparseness of what we have and we think this is what we have to operate out of. And yet, All of heaven, all of eternity is ours. It's already ours. Ours is given to us. May we know that reality. May we experience it. May we operate out of it even this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. How much has